Hello everyone and welcome back to Endopod. For those of you who are new here, hello! My name is Regina Sumarli and I'm a third year medical student. In today's episode, we are going to continue on from last week with our Endogani series. Go check out last week's episode on gestational diabetes by Lewis if you haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Today, we are going to discuss a common condition called endometriosis. In this episode, we will cover what endometriosis is, the risk factors, pathophysiology, clinical presentation, differential diagnosis, management, as well as potential complications that may arise with this common condition. To start off, endometriosis is a common condition in which endometrial or endometrial-like tissue grows outside of the uterus. In the majority of cases, it is located within the pelvis, but can also rarely be found in other locations such as the lungs, umbilicus, and skin. These lesions are affected by hormones and such, endometriosis is a disease of reproductive age women. It usually affects 5-10% to of reproductive age women and is one of the most common gynecological disorder in women of reproductive age. It is the second most common gynecological disorder after fibroids. It is difficult to determine the accurate prevalence of this condition because of its variable clinical presentation. In some women, about 20% of patients will improve spontaneously and in the other 80%, symptoms will be stable or gradually become more severe. There are a couple of risk factors that increase the chance of developing endometriosis. This includes early menarche, late menopause, late first sexual encounter, delayed childbearing, nulliparity, obstruction to vaginal outflow such as hydrocolpos, which is a cystic dilatation of the vagina with fluid accumulation, female genital mutilation, or defects in the uterus or fallopian tubes. The last risk factor we have to be aware of is genetic factors. There has been an established genetic link and risk for first-degree relatives of women with severe endometriosis is six times higher than that for relatives of unaffected women. Moving on to etiology, the etiology of endometriosis is not yet fully understood. But it is thought that endometriosis may develop as a result of a combination of the following theories. First is retrograde menstruation, in which endometrial cells flow backwards from the uterine cavity through the fallopian tubes and implant on pelvic organs. Not only retrograde menstruation, endometrial cells can also spread via lymphatic or circulatory system. It has been suggested that endometriosis tissue may be able to travel to distant sites such as lungs, eyes, and brain through the lymphatic system or in the bloodstream. Next is metaplastic change. Cells in the pelvic and abdominal area can actually change into endometrial-type cells. This will then lead to endometriosis. Not only that, environmental factors also have an important role to play. This theory suggests that certain environmental toxins can affect the body and immune system and also the reproductive system, and thus cause endometriosis. Immunological factors also play an important role in the formation of endometriosis. This is related to how the immune system deals with the tissues to allow some to survive in some individuals and go on to cause endometriosis. The last, but not the least, we have iatrogenic implantation. As the name suggests, it is related to post-surgical scars made via episiotomy or laparotomy. Those sites are thought to be prime locations for implantation of endometrial cells that can spread from delivery or surgical procedures. 
it is important to remember that endometriosis is a relapsing or remitting condition and that endometrial tissues typically respond in the same exact way as the uterine tissue, responding to cyclical hormonal levels. As a result, they grow and bleed at certain times of the cycle. Common locations of endometriosis implants include pelvic organs, especially ovaries. Ovaries are the most common site and are often affected bilaterally. Other pelvic organs, such as erectile-uterine pouch, fallopian tubes, bladder and cervix are also some of the common locations of endometriosis. Next, we have peritoneum, followed by extra pelvic organs such as lungs or diaphragm. Extra pelvic organs are less commonly affected. Implantation of endometriosis cells results in increased production of inflammatory and pain mediators, nerve dysfunction, and also altered anatomy such as pelvic addition, which can lead to infertility. So, how do they actually present? Well, people may present differently, but we should suspect endometriosis in women including those age 17 or under, presenting with one or more of the following symptoms or signs. So, chronic pelvic pain, so pelvic pain that is lasting for 6 months or longer. Period-related pain affecting daily activities and quality of life. Deep pain during or after sexual intercourse. Period-related or cyclical gastrointestinal symptoms, in particular painful bowel movement. And also period-related or cyclical urinary symptoms, in particular blood in the urine or pain passing urine. As well as infertility in association with one or more of the above. The problem with endometriosis is that clinical presentation is variable with some women experiencing severe symptoms and others having no symptoms at all. One third of women with endometriosis are actually asymptomatic and they may only be diagnosed incidentally or during investigations for infertility. The appearance or worsening of symptoms at the time of menstruation or just prior to it usually suggests endometriosis. Symptoms typically settle during pregnancy and breastfeeding but return again with the return of menstruation. Symptoms almost always settle with menopause. This once again highlights the role of hormones in the disease progression of endometriosis. It is important to inform women suspected or confirmed endometriosis that keeping a pain and symptom diary can aid discussion. So now that we know about how a patient may present, what do we do next? Well, after getting sufficient history, we should move on to examinations and investigations. Abdominal and pelvic examination should be offered to a woman with suspected endometriosis to identify abdominal masses and pelvic signs, such as reduced organ mobility and enlargement, tender nodularity in the posterior vaginal fornix, and visible vaginal endometriotic lesion. If a pelvic examination is not appropriate, offer an abdominal examination to exclude abdominal masses. Diagnosis of endometriosis requires extensive patient history, physical examination, as well as appropriate investigations such as transvaginal ultrasound and laparoscopy. Transvaginal ultrasound is the best initial test and evidence of chocolate cyst or other nodules may be picked up during the ultrasound, indicating endometriosis. If it is not appropriate, consider using transabdominal ultrasound of the pelvis. To confirm diagnosis, we tend to go for diagnostic laparoscopy and subsequent biopsy of the suspicious lesion. A presumptive diagnosis is often possible with physical and ultrasound findings. For women with suspected deep endometriosis involving the bowel, bladder, or ureter, 
Consider a pelvic ultrasound or MRI before going for an operative laparoscopy. If a full systematic laparoscopy is performed and is normal, we can exclude endometriosis and offer alternative management. We have talked quite a bit about the clinical presentation, examination, and investigations of endometriosis. By now, we should be aware that patients may present differently and diagnosis of this disease may not be as straightforward. People presenting with symptoms of endometriosis can be mistaken for adenomyosis, IBS, irritable bowel syndrome, diverticulitis, pelvic inflammatory disease, or even interstitial cystitis. Due to the vast differential diagnosis, it is really important to use appropriate examinations and investigations in addition to appropriate history taking to diagnose endometriosis. Moving on to management, the earlier the treatment is started, the better the long-term outcome, particularly in regards to subfertility and pain. 30 to 50% of women with endometriosis have infertility, and early referral to gynecology is the best way to maximize treatment effectiveness and fertility. There are a few options for management of endometriosis, including pharmacological pain management and surgical management. First, we will go through pharmacological management of for pain, which encompasses analgesics and hormonal treatment. Consider short trials of analgesics such as paracetamol or NSAIDs alone or in combination for first-line management of endometriosis-related pain. If it is not adequate, consider using neuromodulators or hormonal treatment. Hormonal treatment can help reduce pain and has no permanent negative effect on subsequent fertility. If initial treatment using hormones is not effective or tolerated, or if it is contraindicated, referral to gynecologist is necessary. Next, we will explore the surgical options for managing endometriosis. Laparoscopic surgery can be used to treat endometriosis. As an adjunct to surgery for deep endometriosis involving bowel, bladder, or ureter, consider three months of gonadotrophin releasing hormone agonist before surgery. We should also consider excision rather than ablation to treat endometriomas, taking into account their desire for fertility and ovarian reserve. To prolong benefits of surgery and manage symptoms, consider hormonal treatments such as combined oral contraceptive pills. Hysterectomy can also be done to manage endometriosis. We tend to opt for surgical management if fertility is a priority. We tend to go for excision or ablation of endometriosis or ovarian cystectomy if it is affecting the ovary, as these improve the chance of spontaneous pregnancy. We tend to not offer hormonal treatment to women with endometriosis who are trying to conceive because it does not improve spontaneous pregnancy rate. Before we finish off, it is important to remember that a few potential complications may arise with endometriosis, especially if it remains untreated. These include anemia, increased risk of ectopic pregnancy, adhesion, strictures, and entrapment of organs. Endometriosis is also associated with a slightly elevated risk of ovarian cancer. To conclude, Endometriosis is the most common gynecological disorder in women of reproductive age as it is a hormone-sensitive condition. The cause of endometriosis is not yet fully understood, but it is important to keep in mind that it can occur as a result of retrograde menstruation as well as dissemination via blood or the lymphatics. Ovary is the most common site of endometriosis. Patients may present differently with around one-third of them being asymptomatic. When diagnosing endometriosis, Extensive history taking, abdominal and pelvis examination, as well as investigations using transvaginal ultrasound and diagnostic laparoscopy are very important. The earlier the diagnosis and management of endometriosis, the better the long-term outcome. 
Management can be pharmacological or surgical. In both approaches, it is important to consider what the patient wants and the fertility implications that come with those treatments. And that's the end of today's episode. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. And be sure to follow our social media platforms and tune in next week for our next episode of our endogyny series on hormonal contraception. If you enjoyed the episode, please do follow us at Aberdeen University Endocrinology Society on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Also, please make sure to share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. We thank you for the support. If you have any requests for future podcasts or any feedback, please let us know.